This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I'm creating a tribe of tech entrepreneurs that are on a mission to do something big and meaningful. I invite you to join the tribe as well, especially if you want to create change that matters and put your software business on momentum that you're proud of. The goal that I have at this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast this week is Herman Heinz, CEO of Enmet. How we do business can be a lot more gracious, but how we solve business problems can be a lot more elegant and actually better for all stakeholders, not just for the investor. Thinking differently about how we solve business problems has can create an enormous amount of value. It became apparent to me that the vast majority of organizations talk about data being very important, but they don't actually look at it as an asset because they're not actually putting the performance measures in place to look at the data as an asset and reward people for looking at it responsibly. They miss an enormous amount of their value potential. For some companies, the value of their data is more than 50% of the total value of the company. Yeah, yeah. So not looking at that asset, you're leaving an enormous amount of value on the table. This is Herman. He's an experienced professional with over 30 years of experience in finance, technology, data and analytics, and value management. He was a former lead partner at Accenture, KPMG, and EY. In 2018, he founded Enmet, together with Professor Andy Neely, Pro Vice-Chancellor at Cambridge University. The company was started to solve a big problem. They saw the world-changing potential of data being lost because most organizations don't understand the real value of it. And as such, they set up Enmet to value data. They do so by translating the intangible idea of data into an asset that business can better manage, and with that, earn higher returns on the data investment, and ultimately drive more change. And doing so, Enmet democratizes the value of data for all those businesses that aren't Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, Netflix, or Microsoft. And this inspired me, and hence I invited Herman to my podcast. We explore the opportunity that many organizations leave unexplored by not treating their data like they treat their physical or financial assets. We dig into why that is the case and what we can do about it to create sizable advantage. We also discuss Herman's point of view and experience in what it takes to create a software business worth making a remark about. By listening to this interview, you will learn three things. Firstly, that we leave a lot of value locked up because we don't use the power of technology enough to enable our customers to connect the dots. Secondly, how we can help our customers create transformative change 
by helping them to make small changes to the human behavior of the employees. And thirdly, why our potential as a software business is often undermined because we don't fully understand ourselves what value we bring to our customers. So Herman, thank you very much for making the time today and be a guest on my podcast. Oh, Tom, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a privilege to be here. Yeah, I mean, I got some good news about you and about your company from a good old friend of mine, Jyoti Banerjee. And that's how I, yes. uh, that's why I reached out. But I know Excellent. I've known Jyoti for a lot of years ago when I was still working at Unit 4. And he was talking to me about a, kind of a number of things he's been working on about integrated reporting. And when I started asking about that concept, he started talking about your company and about what you're doing. But we're going to talk about that in a minute. But it's always interesting for me and also my audience is to know a little bit about the person behind this call. Uh, so <laughs> okay. if, you, if you had to define yourself and, or characterize yourself in a couple of, couple of words, what would those words be? Characterize myself. Oh, I'm focused, passionate, and I would say value-focused. Yeah, very value-focused about creating value for not only me, but for other people around me as a sort of steward role in society. And I think that's probably where you and Joti met as well. We, we have very similar values when it comes to kind of, we see ourselves as stewards in society, creating value for the environment, for all people, but also for the investor. So that is how I, how I would describe myself. Okay. Well, I mean, being value focused is absolutely not a bad thing to have as a characteristic. I love that. So talking about your company, company's called Enmet. Where, mm-hmm. where is the name coming from, by the way? Anmut means a grace in German, a grace or elegance. And okay. one of the things that I've realized is that it's a bit of a play on the word of grace because I think there is how we do business can be a lot more gracious, but how we solve business problems can be a lot more elegant and actually better for all stakeholders, not just for the investor. I think we thinking differently about how we solve business problems has, can create an enormous amount of value. So the, the whole purpose of ANMUT is to help organizations improve the return on investment of data, not just for the investor, but also for other stakeholders, for the employees, yeah. for the environment, et cetera, et cetera. And we've been very fortunate that we attract that kind of client that is interested in creating value, not just purely from an investor perspective, although the kind of value you can create gives you exponential and not just marginal gains in terms of value. So you can create a lot more value for the investor, but you can actually create enormous value for the environment, the stakeholders, by thinking more cleverly about data. And the reason that is really important is that the reason we started Anwood is that over the many, many years that I was a partner in big consulting firms, I was a partner in Accenture, and I, was, I led the enterprise performance management practice for Europe. Uh-huh. I looked after the data analytics practice in Europe for KPMG and then also data analytics for EY. It became apparent to me that the vast majority of organizations talk about data being very important, but they don't actually look at it as an asset. In other words, they don't apply the same disciplines they would to their physical or financial assets. And I realized that's where the thinking goes wrong, because they're not actually putting the performance measures in place to look at the data as an asset and reward people for looking at it responsibly. They miss an enormous amount of their value potential. I would say, you know, for some companies, the value of their data is more than 50% of the total value 
of the company, yeah, yeah. but but not all companies are like that. But the the vast majority of companies, it's it, at least fifteen to twenty percent of the total value. So not looking at that asset, you're leaving an enormous amount of value on the table. And those companies tend to view at the, look at the marginal little increases they can get through supply chain or etc. But actually, the real value they're totally blind to. So what we do is we help them understand <laughs> that value and then look at what they can do with that data, but also put the process and the strategy in place to actually execute on that. So all of our tools, everything we do is purpose to do exactly that, to improve the return on investment of data for all of the stakeholders, because it really does, really does do that. Interesting. I mean, so so you saw that when you were working for Accenture, Indeed, looking at it from a, from a from an angle of enterprise performance management, which is all about how can we do better. But can you give an example of of how organizations, any one of us, is taking poor care of their data? Well, quite interestingly, and I think you would see that a lot as well, is that a lot of organizations are, for example, saying they want to do digital initiatives and so on and so forth. And they have great ambitions and plans. But if you if you look back, if you peel back the onion after a few years of these projects running, you realize that most of them have been failures. In fact, the industry statistic is that between only between six and thirty percent of digital programs are successful. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that digital artificial intelligence, all of these things requires data to work. Yeah. And Quite often, people jump into the technology solutions, and they are—they do look very pretty as point you know, as a proof of concept, etc. But actually, when it comes to getting it to work in the organisation, they realise the data is not in a condition it needs to be. And we find that with nearly ninety-seven percent of organisations. So, so there's so there's a vast addressable market space for this. However, what we recognize is that when we started out Anmert, we recognized that about five, between 5 to 10% of organizations are at the right maturity curve to buy what we do. So we don't try and get every organization to do what our products are. We can see over time the maturity and understanding of how you look after your data will increase. But we're very fortunate that there are companies out there that actually get it from startup size all the way through to organizations that invest you know, 20 billion <laughs> in data assets and so on. So there, there's vast differences here. But the constant theme is that the organization has an understanding that they have something valuable called data, but they don't know what proportion of their market value is that data and they don't know what proportion of their management time they need to spend on this data asset. And if that were so, say, for example, they say data is worth 20% of our market cap, should we be spending 20% of our management time on it? Which I can tell you most organizations don't. And if so, are there data assets that are more important than others? So in other words, as in all things in life, you have if you have buildings as an asset, some buildings are worth more than others. Yep. If you have exactly. financial instruments, some are worth more than others, and some have a better potential for increase and so on. So we work with organizations who are ready to understand that they have this data asset, 
and that they want to learn more about it. They want to understand what the value is. They want to understand which ones have the highest value potential. And they, they understand that, you know, it's like the old proverb that said, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago, you know. Yeah. And that's the same with data is you can't just wish for the data to be right today. It's the disciplines you should have put in place, not probably 20 years ago, but maybe four or five years ago that will get you to the data position you want to be. But if you start now, then at least you've got a fighting chance in four or five years from now. Exactly. So what we see is the market is accelerating. There are people and organizations that are becoming more and more data savvy. And there are some great examples of listed companies, Adobe, for example, that have used data to transition their whole business model. And you and I spoke previously about Adobe and products and so on and so forth. But they have transitioned to an as-a-service company from, and data was, was instrumental in making that happen. The whole understanding yeah, sure. of the customer behavior and so on and so forth. And they modeled that extensively before yeah. they changed to software as a service and cloud-based pricing. But oh. that kind of change has obviously, look, you look at their share price now, or not, or not today, because <laughs> COVID has actually you know, damaged a lot of organizations. But the reality is actually Adobe is, is one of those that will be robust through this, this period. Yeah. So it's, that is what we do. We actually do something really basic. It's complicated to do, but it's basic yeah. to, to understand. If you can. How do you, what triggers me, you're talking about yeah, dealing with data as an asset, as if you would put it on your, on your balance sheet, spending the right time on it, trying to identify which data has, is more valuable than other. For me, for a lot of the people that I interview for this podcast are in the data business. I mean, they, yes. uh, they have moved from the transactional focus into a more data focus and tried to use one of the kind of the quotes that I still like from Adam Martin. Adam Martel from Gravity, it was, that was already 2018, I think, that interview. He said, there's a lot of vendors out there that, that have a product that I would call, it's a cup that holds the water. For example, the CRM systems, the ERP systems out there and so on. Yeah. And they wanted to do something that actually does something with that water as a fuel. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you look at data as fuel to fire something up much more important, then it becomes like, what is the use case for this? Exactly. Uh, it's like what can you, what could be possible with data that would exponentially grow our business. How do you value what is important and what is not important in this case? Oh, that's a great question. I'm really glad you asked that. The way we go about it is we, we have a multi-stage value approach. Um, the first thing is we do look from the investor perspective. So for listed companies, we look at the things that the investors, so we analyze through neural networks, all the signals happening in the market and we understand why investors invest in a certain company or not. And those we translate into value drivers. So we can understand the things that trigger in a certain industry investors to invest or not. And we can then point to the data assets that sit underneath those things. So we can identify related to the key value drivers, what the data assets are. So for example, if you AstraZeneca, you would have significant value if you have new drugs related or new medical solutions related to specific high demand diseases etc what we have is and this is this is a lot of our ip is that we have an ability to understand what percentage of that value relates to data that's the work we do by industry now we can understand from an investor perspective what makes up the value of the company 
But then even more importantly, we have proven techniques that help us understand what the different other stakeholders value of the organization. So in other words, what your customers value and what the value drivers are around those employees, suppliers, governments, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the key things to determine then is who are the most important stakeholders for the organization and then determining what value the organization contributes to each of them. You know, value is like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. And that's how we we decode that. We've created algorithms that decode that for organizations. And then once you've got that, you can understand what data assets are in the organization. But then you get to the next point. If you know what the top five data assets are, say, for example, in a pharma company, something like clinical trial data is very valuable. If it is currently fragmented across all of the research scientists in the organization, its condition is poor in terms of being able to extract value. So that condition indicator indicates whether you you have the the asset in a good enough condition for the use cases. So that then gets to the use cases. If you then want to say, we want to use clinical trial data over and over again, to inform new use cases, you can then say, well, actually, these use cases are worth billions. And our current data, we would need to invest 300 million in to improve it to the condition that's fit for purpose. Previously, if you didn't think of the data in those asset terms, you would have missed that opportunity. So what we do is we put that lens on it so that organizations can view the data as an asset underlying it. And that's why we say it's the exponential value opportunity because they will, organizations will repeatedly try to solve the problem as little islands in the organization. Exactly. And they can't seem to solve it because it's actually a fundamental thing. It's it's one thing called data that needs to be solved in a different way. And once you unlock that, then the use cases become very viable. Let me make a small interruption here. Herman just illustrated a critical aspect of how they help their customers unlock exponential value rather than just incremental value by revealing the big picture beyond the typical silos of an organization. They help connect the dots and make that actionable. And that creates new value possibilities. And creating new value possibilities is one of the 10 key traits that enable software businesses to stand out in their market. I discussed this in detail in my book, The Remarkable Effect. But to actually help software companies close the gap on each of these traits and propel their business forward, I have started a tribe. The tribe is dedicated to tech entrepreneurs who are on a mission to create meaningful change. And if that sounds like you, I invite you to join. Go to valueinspiration.com for more details. Back to the interview. Yeah, it reminds me of a case, Cindy Gordon, the CEO of SalesChoice, was on Mm -hmm. my podcast in 2019. Of course, her company is using AI to help the financial people in the company to to get or the, or the, the sales management to understand what it's for the forecast going to look like with accuracy and also mm. going to help with, okay, what are the deals in the database that are ready to close so that yeah. you can focus on those rather than focus on everything and miss, the, miss half of it. Mm. And she actually started to realize as well that data quality was essential to the success but no one knew about it. And then it's about changing habits and habits. So salespeople hate CRM systems and yeah. therefore they will never put in the data until yeah. you prove to them or you, you give them the credit for it. That the moment you start 
maintaining your data, yeah. you will get a lot of it back because the quality of the leads or the quality of the opportunities that will close this week, next week are going to be in your face. Yeah. So she started to work at it from the, from the perspective of, okay, I give you a dashboard understanding what your data quality is so you can fix it. And it, it's fixed by just, just changing that simple behavior. Absolutely, um, absolutely. So a lot of it then, you know, fundamentally it comes down to changing human behavior in terms of, of that stuff. What is the, you know, creating that abundance mentality. And you can, yeah. when you have exponential value, you can create abundance fairly easily if you choose to. Unfortunately, some, some organizations still don't understand that. But it's not a competing thing. It's an abundance thing. But it's playing to your strengths and ensuring you've got the data for your strengths, not the marginal play against your competitor. And that's really, really the key thing. But you have to be honest with yourself what your strengths are. And some businesses, some business leaders like, you know, think like that, and some unfortunately don't. And I can't, I can't tell them to do that. We can only work with clients who really want to do the, you know, the former. Yeah. I mean, that's the good old thing about segmentation and about like, who is it for and who is it not for? The easiest one are the ones that are telling themselves the story where they want to be and, and what I need, that they do need to do something different in order to achieve that. Absolutely. That's how the market works at the end. Interesting. So how long has the solution been on the market? So we, we are on a journey. So our first clients are what I would call consulting and algorithms. So for the next probably year, we will continue to work on that basis. And we will have a platform available in 2021. So that okay. people can, so it's, okay. and the, the reason we do that is that we will not be we don't want to build a large consulting organization. What we want to do is to be able to allow customers to, to do this for themselves and only use services where they need where it's they need much our more help. scalable. It's much more scalable and it's also that if you look at the scale of the market, we were very surprised at how quickly the market understood what we did. I was, I was thinking, you know, initially the first getting the first client is really tough. Uh, <laughs> I think as, every, yeah. as everyone will tell you. But then, then after that, people start understanding the story, it makes a lot more sense after that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so talking about this, this kind of almost like beta product, then, or at least your your kit back of algorithms and tools that you help to identify it. So where do you start? Do you start with, okay, what is, what is the potential value you want to create? Or do you start with, okay, this is the data, this is something you could do with it? Yes. So we start from the top down, from the value perspective. So we, the first thing we do is to help organizations understand what proportion of their total value. If it's a listed company, it's part of the market cap. What proportion of that is data? And what, yeah. what are the key data assets in there? You know, the big, the big rocks. And then understanding that already, usually that's quite an epiphany because what they get in there is also some very aligned investor feedback. So we, we don't just give them the data. We actually tell them this is how the investors view you. And most CEOs find that incredibly interesting to get a, an un biased view on it it's purely what the numbers tell them this is what the market because the stock price is purely a reflection on somebody's willingness to buy or sell at a certain price point it's nothing it's really nothing more but there are things that cause people to do that so we we analyze that 
and we show them the data assets that sit beneath that. When we were approached by a government organization to do this, we thought this is going to be really difficult. How do you do this for a non-listed company? And we, what we, we had to work out a model of how much a government organization creates value for society. So for, and in our case, all of our government clients are UK based government organizations. So we, we worked out what the benefit is for the UK economy. And there are, there are some proven models for that. And we adapted a few of them. We tested six and eventually came up with a seventh, which is a bit of a hybrid of, of all of those. But we can understand the same question, what percentage of the economic value that a certain government organization produces relates to data value. And that's really, really important. For example, we work with a very large infrastructure, UK infrastructure government client who spends, you know, in the next five years, they'll spend $30 billion on new infrastructure. And by their own estimation and little proof points they have, they believe that they can reduce the cost of operations by about 20%. But much more importantly, they can improve safety, they can you know, create faster, so, so they're in the transport business, they can improve faster journey times, they can save energy, so for the environment, et cetera, et cetera, by more than 20%. So if you look at it in a normal business term, there's a margin gap there of 40% between current and future. And if you apply normal financial discipline and you discount that into perpetuity, that's a much more than 10 times the exponential gain that they've got. And, you know, they would typically, for a piece of concrete infrastructure they put in place, they would get a maybe one, two times kind of gain. They're getting, you know, more than 10 times on kind of on data stuff. So suddenly they realized by understanding the value as a percentage of asset base they now had an aha moment and said, we are not paying enough attention to this. You know, we are not giving it the management attention it deserves. And that's, that's the epiphany. That's the thing that changed. So once you have that, we then help them structure it with a next tool, which is a portfolio tool to structure it into to assets that you want to invest in further, assets yeah. that are a risk that need to be managed, assets that you want to get rid of because they provide no competitive advantage to you as an organization and assets you know that there are assets that you might want to sell you know so assets or want that to actually, buy for the, for the yeah, same reason or, yeah. or want to buy for the same reason so so helping you understand your portfolio of choices again is sort of another aha moment and then once you've got that you need to make some decisions about where specifically you invest in which data assets in other words at the more granular level what kind of things do you invest in to keep the data, what technologies, et cetera, et cetera. So we have yeah, yeah. a framework, which again is supported by a modeling tool that helps you make informed decisions of around 60 key variables of where to place those investments. And it's backed up by many years of use cases that we've populated into it. So there's, a, again, an algorithm that learns from past investments to understand where the where the optimal place is to to do that and fascinating you know so none of these tools you can imagine we still early days it's nearly two years that we've been operating none of these tools will give you a hundred percent right answer but no value no valuation is hundred percent right but it's you know in the 75 to 85 percent confidence level and over time it will improve as our database gets sure. better and it's better and than then, zero 
But you know, see, the thing is, as long as you have a better than 50% being right, you're in a winning category. You know, if I, if I knew the stock market, if I knew I was better than 51% right, I'm, I'm in the money. That's, <laughs> the that's right, scale. that's right, yeah. But then the other thing is the, finally, the thing that we, we open the tool sets we have today. So we have got those four things, the understanding of value, the portfolio, the prioritization of investment, and then the, the fourth one is around linking it to the performance management in the organization. So now yeah. tracking how the organization is doing at creating or destroying value of its data assets and linking that specifically to people's scorecards. So it's like, I don't know if you remember EVA, when that was introduced yeah. many, many years to so Stern Stewart's model. Basically, they, they took data. Yeah, they took that. And so this is now doing this for data and kind of helping organizations understand what the scorecard is. So that's what we do. It's, you know, you might, you probably think about it, this is so simple. Why has nobody done it? The technical complexity is tough, but it's doable. You know, our clients are starting to see the benefit, even early stage benefit of doing this just, a difficult economic time like now, being able to rationalize your data assets yeah. on, and focus on the key ones is critical. You know, where do you cut at a time like this? And this is the kind of thing that can help you a lot. I'm actually wondering like where the market is, well, what other markets you would have for this? Because I mean, you're looking at it from an end user organization perspective, mm. a government or a construction company or a utility company. What if a, if a technology vendor would have this tool? to kind of inform the potential of their solution. Because, I mean, there are so many vendors out there that still, I would say, have to make that transition to start to understand what value they have with, with their solution in terms of the data and yeah. still not doing anything with it. I recently yeah. heard a vendor saying, okay, yeah, well, regarding doing something with data and AI, our partners will do that. Yeah. Well, I would say <laughs> think twice. Yeah, think twice. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'd agree. I'd agree with that. We have to companies that clients in the more tech space they more web-based and digital assets based so they found it really really valuable and what the in the one situation they are in the in the biomedical space so they have a lot of digital data profiles of patient test data and so on and so forth and they what they were unclear of is how to explain that to their investors what the value of these things are. So they asked us to help with that. So the simple model we helped them put together was saying, well, actually, we know what quality and volume of data you need for a neural network to be able to get to a certain level of confidence. And at a certain level of confidence, it's acceptable for the FDA, et cetera, et cetera. So you now can put together a roadmap of how you gather data over time for different conditions. And some of them you'll gather more quickly because they're more common. And some you'll gather more slowly, but at key points in time, you'll have some very valuable data assets. So given your projected rate of data gathering, this is where you start being able to get data assets. Now, what you go to the investor is to say, we need investments at these periods of time to build the next analytical tool set, yeah. and et cetera. And that, that's the kind of thing we, we do help organizations with. These are, you know, it's again, if you think about it, it's actually extremely simple but the the secret source is there is a lot of the reason we are successful is we bring together corporate finance skill very high-end strategy skill as well as data science and that's quite rare that's true yeah. yeah another thing that i've been thinking about and it reminds me of another interview with patrick berglund the ceo of xeneta 
he has created a solution that is sort of transforming the way the container shipping industry is working, which was always like, okay, I am Nike. I need to ship container from New York to Singapore and I have to buy yeah. that route. Mm. And now what they've done, they have aggregated all the data from all the companies in the world that are doing those shipments because that was mm. never available. It was always mm. in silo with the, vendor, the shipping company that you were working with and they had monopoly position at the end. And now they've turned this whole market around. So now the buyers know the rates and the suppliers, the ones that are doing the shipping, are coming on board and saying, okay, the rates are now available to everybody. Now let's work on yeah. more the strategic engagement. We can, we can start to work on together. So, I mean, is this maybe also something to look at at, a, at an industry level or maybe even larger national level? I mean, you made a point about clinical trial data and the person we were talking about before our call, Suzanne Bars in this case, she's working on an initiative to bring data about rare diseases together at a global scale. Because, mm. I mean, look at people that have a rare disease. Sometimes your own doctor doesn't know what's happening with the doctor that's in the next room, let alone yes. the hospital next door, yeah. let alone, etc. So all these solutions. And, and yeah, the solutions for this could be one, one city away, one province away, one country away. It doesn't really matter. At the end, the value of the total of data provides a lot of insights. And that's what you could, for example, use to start benchmarking yourself against your peers. And have you got any initiatives around that level already? You'll see something very exciting coming out probably in about <laughs> six months from now. I, okay. I, I don't want to say too much about it, but it is, it will definitely But it's be coming to that rev- yeah, yeah. realization that it's not about keeping it for yourself. At the end, it's like the abundance, create its abundance exactly. and use it yeah. in an anonymized way. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So that's, that's all, all happening. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Because you could play a, yeah, you say that a catalyst role in that whole in that whole thing for people to make to make people see what they're missing yes. out on. Yes. And I, for yes. example, I I get those stories from Suzanne Bars about the health industry. They're not exactly an industry that is heavy on cooperation, mm. on cooperation. Yeah, once you start to kind of open those eyes, then then it becomes an obvious one. We talked about a lot of things already. One of the things you've you've started to read my book. You said it's about remarkable software companies one of the things that triggered me in the beginning of our call when you said i'm characteristics of me as being focused passionate and value focused what is your perspective creating a software company that's that is remarkable in, in what it does what is my perspective what is on? your yeah what do you believe are key traits of software companies that are remarkable and or how to how to be create them and make them remarkable well it's a great question you know, bill gates probably is the best person to answer that <laughs> <laughs> that, that question the you know it, i think there's an evolutionary question to that if you're a software startup you absolutely need to need to be focused on solving something that is of value to somebody and be relentless about it and not necessarily seek applause for that in the early stages you need, you know, if you know you're right, if you've got a validation that the market will find enormous value on this, you have to be relentless and not compromise on the, the vision that you have. Yeah. Quite often I see software organizations produce things that are, they try and be everything to everybody and eventually exactly. it's of no use to anybody. So I think it's a relentless focus on the vision. There is... Obviously, something to say about the, the quality of the product, the you know, understanding the, the joy that we all get out of something that's designed well, that actually 
is thought through to solve something well. You know, any, you know, Steve Jobs and Johnny, I've got that, you know, and they designed products that delighted. And there are many other organizations that do that as well. I think that is, that is critical to differentiate in terms of the experiential part of it, I think is, is yeah, critical. Exactly. Exceed expectations at that level. Yeah. I mean, those are things I would, I would say, I, you know, I, I have a very simple view in life is find the customer and, you know, make sure the customer understands what you can offer and completely understand what the customer values. I think we often listen too much to what literature tells us the answer is rather than thinking for ourselves what what people are experiencing as real pain points. And I think that's what, in my mind, makes for a great software company but let's see let's see whether my own my own advice well yeah i mean you're on the journey now you 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 said the two years down the road and you've done all kind of use cases and now i think everything starts to yeah starts well the the real solid parts start to rise to the surface that's what becoming your product and but you put in the hard work in order to get to that point trial and error and experimentation i would say correct absolutely Absolutely yes. No, I think I think it is. It is lots of trial and error, and I I think one of the key things you need to be willing to make mistakes, but then be willing to fix them quickly. Yeah, <laughs> and, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting approach that you're taking here, starting with yeah, a consultative slash algorithm type approach, but that you have a lot more control about what the outcome is, and you can fix well, it I, fast. I think that's true. It is something I did think about long and hard. Do I? Because it is, it is up to fairly recently, it was fairly easy to get capital for lots of ideas. And the, what we are doing, even quite a few of the advisory board members that are fantastic friends, took some time to understand what the scale of the opportunity is. And quite often we're saying, well, why don't you sell some analytics visualization stuff? Or why don't you do this? Or you follow. And, and the, the answer is, Yes, at some point there is a space for that, but that's an add-on. The core product is is about understanding the value of your data asset, and yeah, that's and that's not available yet. That's, that's why they can't get their head around it. Yeah, because so, all the other things are you can shrink buy them shrink wrapped on the marketplace. Exactly. So the and I've seen you know I sit on the board advisory board of a number of startups. I see quite often some investors get it and some. Some don't, you know, and it's yeah. uh, sometimes you just need the money. But we, the reason we went for this model is it gives us a degree of ability to execute our vision more in line and also do something which, which I think is valuable is to test very early on, test, test, test what is really working, what's not working. So it's sort of agile on steroids approach. <laughs> yeah, but also in a way that actually you get people to pay for it. So yeah. Yeah, and they get you know, as long you as do, they do get valuable projects, as long as they get high value and they do so, then, and I think the reality is over time, with only large organisations can afford what we do at the moment because it is a it is very expensive the volume of time that you need to put into it. But I can anticipate in eighteen months or so, significantly smaller organisations will be able to benefit. The reason I helped a number of startups is. I wanted to test whether it could work for a smaller organization as well. And it absolutely can. In fact, it is probably even more valuable because the organization is able to take the change and have, you know, make it happen more quickly. So Yeah, exactly. 
the kind of the return to investment exactly it's faster yeah exactly. yeah I, I can see that so you are going to democratize that which is what a lot of companies are at the end all about exactly, exactly. yeah interesting interesting yeah so let me see from what you've learned so far in the last two three years what would be advice you would give to your to someone starting a software business or, or trying to transform one to do different or not or better oh there's so much that i've learned i would i think the the key thing is to absolutely don't start the journey unless you know you are 110% committed to it. If you know this is a problem that the world needs solving and there is value in solving it, you then have to be 110% committed. It's not a part-time thing. I would say that I got lucky, and I have to say that because I, w- I was able to attract the right people at the right time, but the right people at the right time are absolutely critical to, to executing your strategy. I also got lucky with clients who, who got it, who got the story and were willing to believe because in the early days it was really a belief. It, this had never been done. So getting that across. So I would, I would say don't underestimate luck in the whole thing. I know, you know, when you listen to most people telling the story about how successful they were and so on and so forth, I do think there is luck. But the one thing you can control is how fast you burn cash. And that variable is very, very important because that allows you to play the luck. Luck sometimes takes a bit longer to land than <laughs> then but if you truly if you truly know what you have is is differentiated there's a space in the market that nobody's done what is it's up to you is to educate the market fast enough yeah. to to get there but the luck will then come but you have to give yourself enough time to do that so the question if it's luck by the way the question at the end is i think it's more belief i think you know and so, i mean so, belief belief comes from trust and belief comes from something that's valuable where someone is seeing wait a minute yes i'm taking a risk but i'm willing to take the risk because if it's if we get it right, this is my point of differentiation. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I do agree with that. And, you know, you, you do ask about what makes great software companies. The, you know, the, a lot of software companies become like a religion. It's, you know, so I think that yeah. belief, that belief system in that it is actually doing something more valuable than you paying for it is, is critical. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. Well, if it's not about belief, the question at the end is if then it's likely already available and it's tested, and then you're talking about completely other exactly. forces that you need to yeah. need to work with, like taking all the risk out, you know, because yeah. then you're dealing with an early early majority rather than an innovator. Very exactly. interesting. Yeah, the question at the end, of course, is how you how you arrive at those type of scenarios, but that's about seeing it. And I think we talked about it in the beginning, like what what did you see or what did you came across where you say, wait a minute, we have to there's value in solving this problem. Yes. So what is your greatest aspiration? Where do you want to be in 12, 24 months time from here? So I personally, you know, as I said in in the beginning, I think that a lot of organizations are playing at the margins, the five, 10% returns. We want to be the company that helps organizations make the exponential gains on their data. And what we're seeing already is not, you know, two times, three times, five times, you know, 10, 20 times or more of return on the investment they're getting on the data. But what I would be most proud of is that 
we also educate them about how they communicate with their investors so that that is shared uh, more generously with employees and with their customers with you know so you create value for the environment etc not just uh, the pure financial value there is a much broader value and i think if we can help organizations achieve that through data that would be the the kind of contribution i would feel and you know is making that i would be most proud of not just the financial return the financial returns are there but it's it's actually looking at the bigger picture and yeah. data is at the core of understanding that bigger picture so that's what if you ask me in 2 to 3 years time what i would love our clients the ceos of our clients to be saying i would love them to say and would not only help me improve our success rates on data related projects the return on investment of those projects but we were able to communicate to our investors why the long term decisions we're taking are the right ones and we can prove it that yes. would be something i'm incredibly proud of yeah that's fascinating it's good to articulate what you're doing here what you want your customers to say about how proud they are themselves or how convinced they are themselves because that is visualizing where you're actually going very cool so where can people go to find out more about Enmet and to say hi to you? Well, great. So they can look me up on LinkedIn. <laughs> so okay. they can reach me on our website, which is www.anmut.co.uk, or they can send me an email. And unfortunately, my name is a bit complicated, but would you be able to post it on your, on your yeah, website sure. yeah. when you post the link? So, so it's herman.r.haynes at anmut.co.uk. But that'd be great if you can add that. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll make myself a note on that one. Well, thank you very much, Herman, to be the guest today on my podcast and share your experiences and your vision. And yeah, I think a lot of companies can, can get inspiration from this. Hey, Tom, it was fantastic to talk. Really, really thank you for your time. And I, I do look forward to seeing you and Javier in the not-too-distant future when we can travel again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope that it's going to be soon because then I think the world is a better place to be in than it is right now. <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. But you're welcome. And this ends my interview with Herman. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And talking about that, please share your thoughts and your questions about this episode. And if you liked it and got inspired by it, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Herman Heinz CEO of Enmet. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode.
The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.